Thank you for listening to The Spectator podcast. We've got a new offer. You can get a free Brexit butterfly mug, as well as 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12, if you subscribe at spectator.co.uk forward slash mug. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. My guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for years. He's a prize-winning novelist, a Talmudic scholar, a writer on classical music with special expertise in the works of Gustav Mahler. He writes the world's most provocative classical music blog, Slipped Disc. It can only be Norman Lebrecht, who, as of last year, is also a historian of the Jewish people. His book, Genius and Anxiety, sets out to explain how a relatively small number of Jewish intellectuals and artists change the world in which we live. Norman, your book is a dazzling route through Jewish cultural and intellectual achievements. And in a way, having Jewishness as a common theme allows you to explore some extraordinary juxtapositions between the achievements of poets, nuclear scientists, mathematicians, musicians, political theorists, all of them Jewish, many of them working at the same time. And I would have said that if there is an underlying theme in your book, it's that a sense of anxiety, a sense of urgency, meant that Jewish thinkers were prepared to take intellectual and creative risks that wouldn't otherwise have been taken. Do you think that's fair enough? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's the anxiety part of it. It's a question that's preoccupied me for, oh, more than half my life, probably two-thirds of my life. It's a very simple proposition. Between the middle of the 19th and the middle of the 20th century, about three dozen individuals changed the way that we see the world. Whether it's the, the physical world, whether it's space and time, whether it's the organisational world, how states are created, what is the role of the nation-state, whether it is science, whether it's the arts, in all of these things. There are about three dozen people who, are, who change the weather, and about half of them are Jewish. Now, why is that? At that time, the Jewish percentage of the world population was 0.0002%. So how do you explain this eruption? And no previous explanations have satisfied me. The one is Jewish exceptionalism, which I can not only reject, but I disprove it in, in, in various ways. Yeah, Jews are in some way or other chosen. If that were the case, why is it that almost all of these Jews are Ashkenazi Jews? And hardly any of them are Sephardi. If it was exceptionalism, then it would it would be you would see them across the board. Another is well, it's to do with their liberation from the ghetto. No, they were liberated from the ghetto in the late eighteenth century, and particularly with Napole Napoleon's march across Europe. So this is sixty years later. This is three generations later. So why is it just now, middle of the nineteenth century, that all of this starts to happen? And what is it that's impelling it? Where is the genius coming from? And why is it functioning in this particular way? And do I need to write this book? For most of my life, I thought about this book and thought, no, I don't need to write this. This is, all, this is sort of out there. And then suddenly the time is right and I really needed to write it and that was it. You say suddenly the time is right. Mm. I think I can guess at what may have changed in the landscape mm -hmm. to compel you to write this book. 
which is a resurgence of anti-Semitism, which is plain for everybody to see. Absolutely. Somebody of my age, of my generation, born in this country in 1948, didn't really know the meaning of anti-Semitism. I mean, we, we, we just acted as if it was a thing of the past. And if it wasn't a thing of the past, it would surely have been crushed and buried by the terrible things the Germans had done by the Holocaust. And if ever I experienced animosity from somebody, I never thought that the animosity was anything to do with my Jewishness. It was probably to do with something that I'd said or written or done. And, oh, and, why <laughs> exactly. And I brought it upon myself. So I, I, I never felt that I'd personally encountered anti-Semitism. I'm sure that a previous generation had done, but I thought it's over, it's a thing in the past. And then the last four or five years, yes, I mean, the resurgence is there, and however much politicians try to deny it, no, much they say, well, no, 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 it's just isolated instances. It's not isolated instances, it's something in the air, it's something in the water. Things that we thought were long dead and buried have got some kind of resurgence. Well, I don't and we have know. to ask. I don't have a single Jewish friend who's mm. not. He's not aware of it. He's not aware of it. Exactly. Irrespective, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels it feels horribly personal, even though it isn't. Even though it's not directed at you as an individual, but every single instance that you see, whether it's the, the terrible things that have happened in Paris, whether it's the recent daubings here in London, whether it's the, the bombings in America or in South America, it feels personal. It feels personal. It it is directed against Jews not just as individuals and not just as a people or as a faith. It's directed against Jews as an idea that the Jew is a threat. And that was really what impelled me to write the book, to look and see perhaps the other side. Let's see what the Jewish contribution is. Let's see how Jews in modern history have contributed to humanity and and illuminated humanity. And then let's see if this leads us to any clue as to why this Jew hatred persists. One of the thoughts that your book provoked was a contrast between the Jew hatred of today and the Jew hatred of the 19th century. Mm. In many respects, they resemble each other, the notion of the Jew as a threat. Mm. But something I didn't really know until I read your book was that the early scientific or cultural anti-Semites in, in Germany in the late 19th century were terribly proud of being anti-Semitic and they all sort of anti-Semitic congresses and published the, the, you know, the anti-Semitic journal. But now, so many people accused on the basis of very, very solid evidence of anti-Semitism absolutely deny. Absolutely, absolutely. This is one of the features especially mm. of the British Labour Party. Always the denials. Exactly. And yet... Both see themselves as progressive. The, the early anti-Semites that you mentioned, the early congresses of anti-Semites, all saw themselves as a progressive force in society, as a revolutionary force, as being able to say the unsayable and to heal and cleanse society and, and make society move forward without this Jewish element. This is exactly what we're seeing in the Labour Party. These are exactly those elements. The elements that say that the Jews will never really be part of us. The, the, the Jews have no irony. The Jews are always going to be a bit different from us and therefore we need to treat them differently and of course that's the beginning of, of the worst kind of, of politics that the world and has ever seen. echoes of Richard Wagner's horrible thesis, mm. horrible thesis in Jewishness in music, that mm. the Jew mimics the environment in which he finds himself, mimics the cultural trends, masters the artistic skills, but it's never really the real thing. And yet what your right. book goes to show is that actually so many of the innovations that have changed and formed Western society 
do come from Jewish thinkers. Yes, and so many of Wagner's ideas come from Jewish thinkers. So many of his musical models were Jewish. He was so dependent on individual Jews to do what he had to do that his house pianist was Jewish, that his conductor of Parsifal was Jewish. And that's that an he... extraordinary part of your book. <laughs> his relationship with... With Hermann Levy. Hermann Levy is extraordinary because Levy, on the one hand, is intensely proud of his association with Wagner yes. and, and justifies it to his father, who's horrified. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, profoundly humiliated by Wagner's demands that he converts Christianity yes. and resists them. Yes. This is a topic I particularly wanted to ask you about. Your book begins very unexpectedly by introducing us to four Jews, Mendelssohn, Heine, Marx, Disraeli, who were hugely important figures but had one thing in common which is that they were all, at one point in their lives, baptised Christians. They turned their back on Judaism, but, as you suggest, were unable to turn their back on their Jewish identity. That's right. That's right. When we look at these 19th century conversions, and they were numerous, there's a statistic that I bring somewhere that in Germany, between the 1820s and the end of the 19th century, an average of six Jews a day converted to Christianity. The drive for assimilation was enormous. There was was social pressure, there was commercial pressure. There was a desire, there was an aspiration to be a full part of the German nation. I mean, come on, we've been separate religions for 2,000 years. Religion doesn't matter that much anymore. Let's all be one, let's all be Germans, and let's call ourselves Christians and be done with it. And in in some cases, I'm sure the conversions were sincere and the people were devout and and their descendants became became and remained devout Christians. But for many of them, it wasn't so much a conversion as a migration. And I see it very much in the way that people migrated to America in the 19th century. They didn't quite know what was there, but they thought there was an opportunity and they'd go and they'd try it. And the worst comes to the worst, they'd come back. And when they went to America, certainly the, the first generation immigrants, still maintained all of their cultural baggage with them. They didn't become instant Americans, and probably their children didn't become instant Americans, and it would have taken a while before that process happened. I think that's a similar thing with these conversions. Also remember that with the Jews, when they did convert, they were still regarded as sort of half-Christians. Not there, there, was, there was still anti-Semitism directed against them, even though they were fully converted Lutherans or fully converted uh, Roman Catholics. I, I, think for, I think for probably, I would guess that a majority of them, for mm-hmm. obvious cultural reasons, would have converted to Protestantism, yeah. to Lutheranism, mm-hmm. to the evangelical religion, mm-hmm. apart from anything else that was... In Prussian Germany, that was regarded as the central German religion. I think there was a switch. I think I might say, but it's a north. It's a north. It's a north south. It's a north south divide. Yes, the ones. Yes, in northern Germany would have gone to the evangelical churches, and those in the south and in Austria would have been drawn more to Catholicism. I think there was a switch after Hitler came to power. Mm-hmm. The number of those Jews who converted tended to convert to Catholicism because it was a far safer thing to do. Yes, it meant that in in a sense you had the Vatican behind you, which. Mm despite all the controversies, could actually be a very useful thing. Yes. How did and how does the Jewish community think about Jews who've become Christians? 
I'm sure there's not one single response, but can you give me some idea of the range? There's, of there's a range of responses. I mean, the most extreme range, which would be, say, Zionism and the State of Israel, anybody who is converted to Christianity has ceased to be a Jew. They have betrayed the Jewish people. They've left the Jewish people. So, that, for instance, you can walk the length and breadth of Israel, and they probably have done, and there is no street named after Gustav Mahler because Mahler converted. Equally among the ultra-Orthodox, those who have left have left, and that's it. Uh, among the most extreme ultra-Orthodox, they will actually observe rites of mourning for somebody who has left the faith and embraced Christianity. And then as one moves more towards the centre, one finds more acceptance and more dialogue and more engagement. It's never a black and white thing, Damien. It can't possibly be the black and white. One of the most shocking discoveries I made in researching the book was a letter from Mendelssohn to his mother, Felix Mendelssohn, who was this magnificently upright Lutheran Christian raised in a, a Jewish family. His grandfather was one of the great Jewish scholars, the beacon of what would become Reformed Judaism, although he himself was Orthodox, certainly the greatest scholar in Berlin in his time. And Mendelssohn is converted as a child to Christianity because that will help him become a proper German, it will improve his, his prospects for success as a musician. He is devout. He goes to church every Sunday. He writes hymns. He writes liturgies for the church. He marries a Christian. He comports himself in every way as a proper Christian German, and he speaks the most impeccable Hochdeutsch. You couldn't imagine a better German than that spoke by, spoken by Felix Mendelssohn and his sister. And when he comes to London in 1830, the first thing that he wants to do, they say, where would you like to go? He said, I want to go to your parliament. Said, Why would you want to go there? Because they're debating the Jew bill. And he knows that it's something to do with Jewish rights and Jewish emancipation, and he wants to be there because these are our people. And then he writes a letter to his mother, and the letter is studded with words in Hebrew and Yiddish. Nowhere else does Mendelssohn, in, in, in anything that has ever come to light, refer in any way to his own Jewishness, to his Jewish culture, to his Jewish language, as he does... Uh, yes, as he does, as he does in observing and reporting this debate, and he's using these words to his mother because clearly these are words that they use together at home. So although they are now German Christians, there is still a kind of a Murano existence to them, the way that the Jews existed in Spain where they had to be secret Jews. They were outwardly Catholic, but inwardly secret. And what, then, once, once you start seeing Mendelssohn as a possible Murano, then you have to look at the music completely differently. Well, and there's a point in the book where you say something, and, I, I don't, I, I, and I'm fully in sympathy with mm. this, you say something slightly disparaging about Mendelssohn's religious music. Mm. If you, it lacks authenticity. Maybe... It wasn't me saying that, it was Heine who was saying it. This is Heine, Heine. No, no, it's okay. It's fine. I mean, Heine and Mendelssohn, were, 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 they were occupying the same turf. So clearly they were going to be like fighting cocks in the ring. And Heine attacks Mendelssohn for the insincerity of what he, he finds the insincerity of his, of his Christian music. But then Heine, like Mendelssohn, he's there sort of on the, he's in the middle. He's, well, Heine's he's, relationship with, with Judaism seems... Far more complicated than Mendelssohn's, or even more complicated than Mendelssohn's. Mm. Uh, in some way more complicated, but in many ways less stressful. Heine lets it all hang out. Heine will attack the Jews and he will attack the Christians, and then he'll sit down and he'll write this enormous ode to the Jewish Sabbath, to the Orthodox Sabbath. 
And in the middle of it, the special dish that's eaten on the Sabbath afternoon, which has been kept warm for 24 hours, so it's just been simmering there in the oven. And he writes two odes to which he uses the, the strophes and the rhythm of Schiller's Ode to Joy. So that this classic Jewish dish, which is a religious Jewish dish, it is there because you can't, like a, you can't light a, an oven on the Sabbath. So yeah, there's a Sabbath goy, isn't there, who can do that for you? Yeah, yes, but not for cook, not for the purpose of cooking, only for the purpose of heating the ah, house. So that. any anything that is cooked has to be placed in the and that is warm has to be placed on the heat before the Sabbath and and kept heated all the way through. But he writes this to the rhythms and and the melody because you can sing it. Schiller's Ode to Joy and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So he is this kind of symbiosis of all the cultures, but he's very much at ease with it. And Heine's deathbed words. Well, he had a lot of deathbed words because he was on his deathbed for eight years. Um, so we, we never know. We never know what Heine's last words are going to be. But the last aphorism that he uttered, they brought a priest to him. And he said, I don't want a priest. And the priest said, yes, but you need to be, uh, you need to be at one with your God. You need to confess. You need to, no, 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 no. He said, le bon Dieu me pardonnera. God will forgive me. C'est son métier. That's his job. Which is an incredibly Jewish thing to say. Because in Judaism, there is this one-on-one -on -one relationship with God without any intermediary. And the idea exists that God can't exist without the Jews. If there are no Jews, what's God going to do? There's no such symbiotic relationship with Judaism when we come to Karl Marx. I think it's still sufficiently unrecognized the extent to which Marx's attacks on the Jews were poisonous and had a sort of lasting toxic effect on discourse. Yeah. There is a very complicated setup in Marx's background between his mother and his father. His father converts and converts the children. His mother refuses to convert, she stays Jewish. She wants to raise the children somehow in a Jewish household, which is how Marx knows about Judaism. Which is how Marx, when he's discussing Judaism, he suddenly comes up with a particular blessing that devout Jews say after they've been to the toilet. Nobody will know that blessing unless they've lived in a devout and orthodox Jewish household. But Marx is incredibly conflicted. He fights with his mother all the time. He has a really brutal confrontation with her, both face-to-face -face and in letters. So his eventual anti-Semitism, the self-hatred that comes through in his anti-Semitism, is the hatred of his mother. This is where he's taking it out. But then he, in all of his writings, needs a scapegoat. And the Jews are such a convenient scapegoat. And he can't be accused of anti-Semitism, can he? Because he's Jewish. So he, he reaches for the easy solution. Isn't that a solution that we find employed today by a number of activists in the Labour Party? Who are Jewish. Yes. And yes. who are able to merely invoke that fact yes. in order to sidestep any criticism. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, I mean, we also see it among some of Marx's biographers. I mean, Isaac Deutscher, who is Jewish, and Isaiah Berlin, who is very Jewish. Berlin, in his wonderful biography of Marx, in the early editions, he glosses over Marx's anti-Semitism. He, he practically ignores it. Later on, he comes to terms with it. Yes, I am Jewish, therefore I can't be anti-Semitic. But you can, you can be a self-hating Jew. And one of the writers that I deal with later on, Theodor Lessing, who was murdered by the Nazis, actually not in the Holocaust, 
but was he was handpicked for assassination by Goebbels in 1933. Lessing's great work was a book called Das Jüdische Selbsthast, Jewish Self-Hate, and how others can use it against them. There are Jews who convert to Christianity who are sufficiently, in the end, sufficiently uncomfortable in that environment with that set of beliefs that they return to Judaism. Mm -hmm. uh, one famous example is Arnold Schoenberg, who had converted to evangelical Protestantism, I think partly because this intense desire to be as German as possible. That's right, that's right. And then, in America, ret returned to Judaism and indeed commemorated the victims of the Holocaust or any other composer. And on his deathbed, the last piece of music paper that Schoenberg ever wrote on was, he was going to write a cello piece for Piatigorsky, and he writes at the top, Ich bin ein kleiner Judenbub, I'm a little Jewish child. The dying Schoenberg, 1950. Very, very conscious of his Jewishness. When he converts to Lutheranism, he does it because he thinks it might be a way that he can just help him to earn a living because he's, he's never going to get a job in Austria otherwise. He won't get into the civil service. He won't get a music position in the universities. You have to convert for those things. And so that was the advice that was given, the advice that, that uh, Gustav Mahler gave to Bruno Walter. He said, uh, get yourself converted, change your name, and do your army service. After that, you can be a proper conductor. But Mahler, the same Mahler, I mean, these are things that I didn't put in the book. Um, uh, the same Mahler is sitting in the Vienna Opera one day, and a tenor comes to be auditioned. Mahler sits at the piano, plays a few chords for him. The tenor sings. He has a lovely voice. Mahler says, this is wonderful, this is very good, but I have to tell you, I can't hire you. Why not? You like my voice. You're Jewish. I have too many Jews on staff already. The tenor says, look, Director Mahler, I really need the job. I've got a wife and child to support, and I can't make my living doing what I do, which is I'm a cantor at a synagogue. It's not enough. I need to sing in the opera. Is there someone you can recommend me to that I can get some, some, some engagement somewhere else? Mahler said, you said you were a cantor in the synagogue? Yes. Mahler plays a couple of chords on the piano. He says, do you know this? The cantor says, yes. He says, sing it for me. And it's one of the moments of the Yom Kippur liturgy that Mahler has not heard since he's a child. He needs to hear it at that particular moment. He needs to be reminded of his own Jewishness, although he is converted to Catholicism and director of the Vienna Court Opera. Was there any element of religious conviction in Mahler's conversion? None or was it purely optimistic? No, there was some, uh, it was opportunity and, it was, and, and there was some sentimentalism. When Mahler came out of the church in Hamburg where he, where he converted, he bumped into an acquaintance. The acquaintance said, what are you doing coming out of a church? He said, I've changed my shirt. It was, it was purely functional. It was to get the job in Vienna. But as a child, he had sung both in the synagogue and in the church. He'd been co-opted into the church choir. And he loved the Catholic liturgies. He loved the music of the church, as you can hear in the Eighth Symphony. He loved... He was used, he was accustomed to the rhythms of the church here. So there was an attraction there, but there was no faith, there was no belief. After his conversion, he only once enters the synagogue, and that's... Uh, <laughs> there's a Freudian slip on my part. After his conversion, he only once enters a church, and that's to get married. For his funeral, he demands that there should be no religious funeral at all. They overrule him, of course. And uh, he doesn't want anything to do with organised religion. And when it comes to his own faith, because he believes in God, and he speaks to God, and he prays to God, 
but he praised Gog directly, as you see in the manuscripts of the Ninth and Tenth Symphonies, where the, there are these agonized appeals to God, oh God, oh God, warum hast du mich verlassen? And when he says that in German, what is he saying but the Hebrew Aramaic of the Gospels, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Were there any musicians who converted to Christianity and meant it and kept the faith? Ooh. For example, how Catholic was Bruno Walter? I've heard it suggested that he was reasonably enthusiastic. No, no, I don't think so. No, uh, Bruno Walter, I always find a, a rather slippery character. Fritz Kreisler? I don't think very hard to get a handle on it, um, because his wife, who was American, was not Catholic. So I... I very difficult to say. Were there Jewish musicians who converted with great sincerity? I think Otto Klemper was sincere, but then lost his faith at the end of his life. Like Schoenberg, he converted back. Daniel Barenboim said to me that he was in London once, and Klemper said, what are you doing tonight? And Daniel said, oh, well, I don't have a concert. Klemper said, you come with me to the synagogue, it's Yom Kippur. So he'd, he'd very much come back to it. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone, no. And if they did, the Holocaust probably put them off it a bit. There certainly have been Jews who've become devout Catholics. One of my friends comes into that Mm -hmm. category. And it's interesting for me to speculate whether, despite the painful history of so many centuries, there might be some shared characteristics between Jews and Catholics which perhaps aren't shared between Jews and Protestants or Catholics and Protestants. Yes. I sometimes wondered whether the Catholic mentality is closer to that of Judaism, but it's also, I've also heard it claimed that the Protestant mentality is closer to that of Judaism. Probably Jews would say, thanks very much, we won't identify with either. But do you think it is easier for a Jew to become a Protestant or a Catholic? <laughs> it's easier to become a Protestant in the same way as it's easier for a non-Jew to become a Reformed Jew than it is to be a fully practicing Orthodox Jew. Um, it's easier. There, there, there are just less demands on you. There are proximities that are often obscured. I come clean in the book. I come out in the book as a Talmudic scholar. I come from a very devout yeah. background. I went to rabbinical college. I still study the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud has its own language and its own rhetoric and its own particular approach to problem solving and you find a lot of that in some of the thinkers that I write about in the book. This is a commonality. It is very easy when Mahler goes for a walk with Sigmund Freud. They find an instant affinity. Okay, they're both gentlemen of middle age from the same part of of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They are both very large personalities in Vienna in 1910, but there is a spark between them and there is an instant understanding between them. Freud later says to Marie Bonaparte, Nobody ever grasped me so instantaneously as Gustav Mahler did on that four-and-a-half-hour walk we had. And what it is is that they're both using an argumentative style that derives from the Talmud, where ideas can be brought in from all sorts of corners. There's no linear argument in the Talmud. There is only multilinear argument because it is a, a conversation between rabbis in two different countries and civilizations that takes place across four centuries. So it's edited in the in the eighth century to create this this great kaleidoscope that becomes the basis of the Jewish religion and the basis of Jewish law. Now Christianity is forming at the same time. These are both faiths in parallel evolution. For the first three centuries after Christ, 
Jews and what were called the new Christians, which are mostly Jews who had followed Christ and gone into Christianity, but also people from other, other civilizations who were attracted. There was open communication. I'm so glad you made that point, because yeah. it is so often ignored in discussions of the early church. It's not, just not known about. It's just not known about. It's that until the Congress of Nicaea, until Constantine in the third century, Jews and Christians were basically following the same God. They had perhaps different roots to God, but, but they were still eating together. They were still intermarrying. They were still of the same family. And although there was some hostility and some suspicions between them, and, and, and certainly Jews in the second century introduced just an extra paragraph into the daily liturgy, to say some disobliging things about the defectors. But the defectors are still part of the family. The defectors haven't fully left. They don't actually leave until Christianity decides that the Sabbath is going to be Sunday and there will be no more circumcision. It's that, something uh, that's uncomfortable yeah. for both communities to contemplate. And I think exactly. it's interesting that one of the first scholars to bring this to our mm. attention um, in Jesus the Jew was mm. Gaze was Gaze Gaze Gaze, yes. who had been a Catholic priest yes. and died Jewish. Yes. As, as yes. Paul. yes. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. And had been a fully believing Catholic. I mean, he converted to Catholicism, not out of opportunism or, uh, or anything else, but because in his very early teens he saw this as the truth. Yes, one had to respect that, and then he went on a, on a, on a different journey. In some way, I'm comforted by the knowledge. I've looked into some of the sources of that time, and whenever I read about it, I just feel transported and elevated by the idea that Jews and Christians can live together for three centuries without actively demonizing each other, without saying that one or the other has an exclusive possession of God. That's a comforting thought and a useful one for both communities to remember sure. right at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And now the communities of faith have so much in common. We have so many demons that we have to fight together and that we will be more effective in fighting together that we need to have this dialogue. Norman Raj, thank you very much. My pleasure.